Um, yeah, if, if you're newer to Midtown West, we're going to do stuff like this um, because it is deeply important because this is not something that we come to. This is a community that the Lord is forming. And, uh, you know, this is a, a time that's been really eye-opening to go through Revelation and to see how the enemy is working through human systems to just get in the way of our relationship with the Lord and to bring us into slavery and to keep us into slavery. And I hope y'all were noticing, maybe you didn't, but uh, I didn't ask any of the kids to get up on stage. They just did because they don't care. They weren't even thinking about it. They weren't thinking about me or what's right or what's appropriate. They were just getting up and running around the stage and all the stuff we were doing, like they were just doing their own thing. And there's a part of that that is really, really important. Like if we're going to follow Jesus in this world, it's going to have to look like that in some ways. Because the world is shaped and being shaped the way like a river shapes a rock uh, to oppose God and to not need him and to be independent of him and to be afraid of doing anything outside of the norm. So we are fooling ourselves if we think we can just come in here for an hour on Sunday mornings and listen to somebody talk about something and just kind of generally give it a thumbs up and then leave and go on about our weeks and that 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 is sufficient for what the Lord is doing and what he's calling us to, um, because it's not. And what we need to do, what he's doing in us in setting us free is we are recovering innocence, but it's not a naive innocence. We're not going back to being kids, but what we're doing is we're recovering the freedom of childlike faith. It's the innocence on the other side of experience. It's, it's not this naive little, like, we live in a fairy tale land. We, we live in this world, and there, there are hard and sad and devastating things in this world. But Jesus is leading us as we live in this world, through this world, back to regaining what it's like to be a child, what it is like to be free, what it is like to be free to follow him. And so... Um, I feel like this, what I'm about to share, just my experience this morning, is the intro to the sermon. Um, my wife, Lee, is on the women's retreat. I've been with our four boys all weekend. It's been wonderful. But also, I woke up this morning, and just my brain was fried. It was like, I'm just exhausted. And all the parents are laughing. They're like, oh, yeah, I know what that feels like. Um, and I just, I was having the hardest time connecting with this passage that I'm going to be preaching through. And the last thing I want to do is get up here and like tap dance when my heart is not really connected to what's happening. And so I'm like, man, and it just, I just felt kind of dead. And, uh, then I don't know if y'all know this, some of y'all know this cause we've, I've talked about it a little bit, but, um, Midtown, you know, this is one congregation of six and all the pastors get together before anybody's first service on Sundays to pray together for the services. And it was the strangest thing. Like two of the other pastors felt the exact same way. And we're like, man, I just feel dead. I don't feel connected to this passage. I'm not excited about this. And it was the gift of that community that allowed us to all have our eyes open a little bit and say like, oh, is this a coincidence? <laughs> or is there an enemy at work in the world who is wanting us to all feel that way and think that we're the only ones that feel that way and just kind of move in fear 
and a disconnected heart into these services and just kind of mail it in. And I'd been thinking for the whole week um, about everybody coming and sitting up here together and this morning because of the way I was feeling, I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Because I was just scared. And it was like, yeah, I'm not feeling it. Let's just do normal things and like, let's just move on. And it was through that time with my brothers in that time of prayer that the Lord reminded us of like, Oh man, there's like, there's, this is not coincidence. This is, and there's an active force and it's not unique to me, right? It's, it's hitting you guys too. I'm sure if I asked you to raise your hands, there are those of you this morning who are like, this is the last place I want to be. Or I don't feel connected to the Lord's goodness. I'm not, my heart is not ready to go worship him because I've been swimming out here in this world for the last week and it's hard. And I've been making decisions that have made it feel, made me feel distanced from the Lord. And I feel kind of ashamed to go or whatever it is. But just recognizing that is really, really important for us. Because again, this is not just as, as Lucas prayed, this is not just an exercise of routine. Um, there is routine and there is a routine that is beautiful because it is good for us. Um, but we got to have the heart. We got to have the heart in it. So um, today we are talking about God's wrath, so that's fun. Um, we're talking about God's holiness and his wrath, and, uh, and I think we're going to see it uh, maybe a little differently than we're used to. So I think uh, we're, we're reading chapters 15 and 16, but chapter 15 is just eight verses, and I'm actually just going to preach on chapter 15, but chapter 16 kind of provides a, a context. We're going to read through all of it. And then the sermon's really just going to focus mostly on chapter 15. So um, I think we have multiple readers today because it's a little bit longer passage. Who's, who's reading for us? If y'all come on up. All right. This is Revelation chapter 15, 1 through 8, and then chapter 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All right, this is Revelation 16, 1 through 7. <clears throat> then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its, 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 its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and, be, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. 
And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them the blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, the Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had the power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world, ugh, to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon to the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, guys. Father, we come to you this morning. We are needing you in every way. Lord, we need you to come and meet us in our frailty, in our emotions, our frailty, in our minds, our frailty, in our bodies, our frailty, in our spirits. And we ask that you would come and strengthen us, Lord, not so that we could be strong apart from you, but so that we could be strong enough to be dependent upon you. Lord, that we could see you, that we could know you, that we could do life with you, that we would um, not live in functional unbelief because we, we believe you, but there's so many times that we just forget and we are living out of our circumstances and our reaction to our circumstances instead of living out of the fact that you are alive and present, Jesus, and you are with us, and you are leading us, you are shepherding us, you are always near, we always have uh, what we need from you. And Lord, would you uh, just use the, the, the reading and the preaching of your word and all the things that we are doing here this morning uh, to strengthen us and help us remember and open our eyes and do all the things that you want to do that we don't even know about. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so, uh, yeah, we're talking about God's wrath. Um, and I, I think for a lot of us, you know, God's wrath is this thing that we almost cringe when we hear it, and we're like, we're embarrassed by it. And, and it's almost like our angry 
old grandfather who's out of touch with everything who's just yelling about the state of the world. And we're like, all right, guys, let's, maybe we can talk about something else or maybe we'll keep grandpa out of here so that we don't embarrass our friends. And, um, and if we can think about God's wrath in terms of like, just almost like at any given moment, he could turn it on me. And I'm like terrified. And what if I, what if I stop acting the right way? And what if I go too far? And, and is, then is his wrath going to be turned on me? And so it's just this weird, scary, embarrassing thing um, that's just kind of hanging out here, uh, maybe apart from all the rest of his character and who he is. But the reality is that... Um, and then we also get this picture, too, uh, of Jesus being like this older brother who gets in the way of us, his little brothers and sisters, uh, between us and his abusive dad, right? It's like, man, God is so angry and so full of wrath, and thank goodness Jesus is there to, like, take it on him. Um, but what the Lord is showing us in this passage is that God's wrath is uh, good and it is holy and it is just as much a part of him and it's just as much a part of the Trinity. It all fits together um, beautifully. And uh, there are just many ways that we are, uh, we've kind of learned wrongly to paint God in our own image. And so believe that he is speaking to us about these things in this passage. Um, what I want us to, to see just kind of in, in general, this context that helps us see this picture of God's wrath rightly is um, all of this language of chapters 15 and 16 uh, is reminiscent of the Exodus account. Uh, you know, the, the very first verse of this passage, and then I saw another sign in heaven. So again, it's a sign. It's not, these things are not literally going to happen, but he sees this depiction of things that are happening and going to happen. Uh, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So these, these seven angels with the seven plagues, we, we, we need to go back to the first time we saw the plagues of God. Uh, in the, the Exodus account. Because all of the language, all of the imagery in this passage is pointing back to Exodus and saying, um, you need to understand Exodus to understand what I'm saying here. And Exodus was this little picture, this little foreshadowing of what's happening on a cosmic level uh, now and at the end of all things. And so this is the right context for God's wrath, is to understand it uh, in the picture that we have from the Exodus account. And so first, uh, the first thing I wanna, want us to look at is, is these first few verses, verses two through four, um, to see the 144,000, to see uh, those who have conquered, uh, to see those who are worshiping the Lord, and to say, man, look at them. <laughs> um, they are by the sea of glass mingled with fire. And so if you remember the Exodus account, um, Pharaoh and his, his people were uh, treating God's people so, so badly, so harshly. Uh, they became slaves. Um, they, were, they were beaten. They were mistreated. The people of God were slaves in a foreign land. Uh, to an angry ruler who just wanted to destroy them. And so Pharaoh was real, but he was also a picture of the dragon, of Satan, who is the ruler in this strange land, the ruler of this world, who wants to destroy the people of God and everything of God's. 
And so we see um, in the Exodus account, remember we walk through the plagues and God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, if if you will not relent, um, I will bring these plagues on your people. And then God is faithful to do exactly as he says, because Pharaoh will not relent. He will not let them go. It ends with the, the death of the firstborn. Um, and then the people are, God's people are moving out and God leads them basically to where they are cornered up against the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh is raging and has a change of heart and calls his entire army to come after God's people. And so now they find themselves stuck between the Red Sea and this Egyptian army that's barreling down on them to destroy them. And then we see the Lord makes a way and and he parts the Red Sea so that his people walk across. They walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And then as Pharaoh's army is coming to pursue them, they are swallowed up and destroyed because the Lord releases the waters back on them. And so we have this scene where those who have conquered through the Lord Uh, God's people are standing on the seashore victorious and Moses leads them in this song, the song of Moses, where he is praising God for his salvation. He's praising God for making a way where there was no way. And he's praising God and they are praising God that he has made a very clear delineation between his people and the enemies of his people. He found a way when there was no way to save his people. And he found a way when there was no way to destroy all of their enemies. And so they are singing this celebratory song uh, by the seaside. And that's what we we have a heavenly version of this here. Because this sea of glass mingled with fire is just this awesome picture. We've seen the sea of glass before. It's, It's before the throne room of God. But we see that this is a picture from the Exodus account. They are standing, these 144,000 who are victorious, who have conquered by the blood of Jesus and by the testimony of the saints, are standing victorious by the seaside, as it were, singing songs of salvation to God. Because as, as this passage says, they're singing the song of Moses, which is also the song of Jesus, because it's all the same song. God has been working out his salvation through all history that's culminated in Jesus and is going to be ultimately fulfilled and realized when he returns to make all things new. So that his people have been singing his song of salvation from the beginning of time all the way to the time when Jesus returns and beyond into eternity. And we see these people, and, and the song is, is these beautiful lyrics, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You, you made a way for us when there was no way. Um, I'm going to read to us from the, some of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. It says that they were, they were there, the last couple of verses before chapter 15, uh, they were standing, the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, 
and in his servant Moses. And then Moses leads the people in this song in just a couple verses from this song. I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your home, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And so, so this this is the people, and, and I can imagine, John, I imagine myself, because I was feeling this way this morning, you're watching these people, and you're like, sometimes it's hard for me to imagine myself there, because the way I was feeling this morning was like, yeah, I, I want to sing that song, but it, it just feels like there's a block there. It feels like I'm, I'm too limited to sing that song. It feels like I'm too sinful to sing that song. Um, and so there's a way in which you're watching this happen and you feel disconnected from this. But remember what John is seeing is the totality of all of God's people throughout history that he has redeemed for himself. So John is, it's like a scene from Back to the Future. John is seeing himself in the future singing this song and in a very real way, seeing himself in the present singing this song. And so there's a way in which I can read this and think, man, who are those people? Like, oh, wait, that's me. Oh, wait, I'm singing that song because of the salvation that's mine in Jesus, not because of my own strength or my own ability to get it together and keep it together. Not because I got really excited every Sunday morning to come worship, not because I never fell for any of the temptations that the dragon laid out before me but because of the finished work of Jesus. And remember, let's look back to the Exodus account to see this salvation that came, the, the way that God made when there was no way was through the Passover lamb. He said, I, I'm going to bring a plague on every house that does not have the blood of the lamb on his doorposts. It is, the, it is not the sinlessness of God's people because they were just as sinful in their own ways as the Egyptians it's not the sinlessness of God's people that saved them from that plague and from death. It was the blood of the lamb. And the same is true for us. It is the shed blood of Jesus that saves us from God's wrath. It is not anything that we have done or not done. It is only that. And when, when God made a way for, for his people to walk through the sea, it is, it is the Lord who parted the sea for his people to walk through. They didn't part the sea. And it was the Lord who brought it back crashing on all of his enemies. So this is our song, and we don't have to feel a certain way to sing it. It is our song always because of the finished work of Jesus that has become ours because of the great exchange. The Lord has given us his righteousness and taken away from us our sin. I'm not experiencing that fully today because we are not here at this scene yet in all of its fullness. 
I still dwell in this body of flesh, and so do you. We are frail. We are weak. We are susceptible to temptations. We are susceptible to suffering. We are susceptible to all of the evil and ugly things that can happen and do happen to us in this world. And yet we still sing even now, though imperfectly, because this is already true. And we will sing this perfectly. It says, you know, they were playing with their harps, and there's, we have this, I think, really poor image of what it means to be in heaven playing songs on our harps. <laughs> Man, um, if you go back and read, even in the Old Testament, you see David commanding loud, joyous songs of praise on all the stringed instruments, including the harps, on all of the horns, all the percussion um, and he's saying, I want you to shout, and I want there to be this powerful worship. So um, sometimes I think we need to summon our thoughts more of like arena rock than about this um, just spa music with um, light harps in the background. Because it's, that's, it's visceral, right? It's, man, I'm, I'm experiencing this total salvation of God, and what else can I do? Like, what, what else could I do but sing with all of my being because of what he has done for me and, and how good he is to me? And what I love about this is, is this little excerpt of the Song of Moses, the Song of the Lamb in this passage. Uh, the song that has become, it's the same song as the Song of the Lamb, but the Song of the Lamb is like a better, it's like a live version where there's just a deeper cut and there's more going on. Because what's not in the Song of Moses that is in this song of the Lamb in Revelation 15 is this last part. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. In the song of Moses, it is all the nations are going to be terrified and you're going to destroy them and we're the only ones that are going to make it. But in the song of the Lamb, we see what's really been going on throughout all of history is that God's people have always been a kingdom of priests to draw people in to worship the Lord because he's going to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we see in the song of the Lamb, all nations, people from every nation are going to come and join in this song and those 144,000 and all the multitude of heaven, you're going to find people from every language, every culture that's ever been because of the way that the Lord is working in the world to draw all people to himself. Because your righteous acts have been revealed. That word righteous is uh, the clearing of someone's sins. The way that you have cleared our sins has been revealed to the nations. And so they are going to come and worship you as a result. You know, in, in, uh, chapter 16, we have this little like parenthetical word from Jesus as, as John is recounting this message in verse 15, Jesus says, behold, like, Hey, hey, listen, listen, as you're getting this vision, remember this, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So I want to say just a couple things about that. He's encouraging us with this. There's a way to hear this that we've kind of flipped it on its head and it's become discouraging. It's like Jesus who's going to catch us. Like, I'm coming like a thief. So better not do anything bad or I might just pop up and catch you, you know. Um, and he says, you know, to, be, to, to remember to stay awake and to keep your garments on so that you're not seen naked and exposed. 
I want us to remember something that Jesus said when he was teaching in his, his ministry while he was here with his disciples. Um, he talked about Satan as a strong man who no one could come and mess with his stuff because he was so strong. And Jesus says, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tie him up and then I'm going to raid his house. So when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming like a thief, he's not coming like a thief against us. He's not coming as the sin police to catch us. He's coming like a thief to the enemy and everyone who's aligned with the enemy to say, I've already been coming like a thief. I've bound him. When I was crucified and resurrected, the enemy is powerless now. All he can do is intimidate and scare, but he cannot do anything against God or God's people. It is finished. So he has already bound him, and there's a day where we will fully experience that when Jesus comes like a thief and takes all of his people and plunders the house of the enemy and brings everybody home with him. And when he says to stay, keep your clothes on, um, he's saying that's, that's a reference that he's already made in Revelation in chapter three in the letters to the churches. He was talking to the church of Laodicea who were so proud about who they were apart from him. And he said, in Laodicea, they had this like black wool that they were famous for, and it was like a fashion capital. And he said, actually, you're naked because you're depending on something other than me. You need to come and get white robes from me so that you will be clothed and your shame will be covered. And he's saying the way that you are okay is that you're in me. I am your covering. You don't have to go do something. You don't have to go be better. You just have to remain in me because I am the one who covers you with my righteousness. So no matter where you are this morning, um, especially if you were coming in at a place like where I was, um, we don't need to be afraid that Jesus is going to be at a loss because he was counting on us to add something to what he was doing. Um, it is already finished. And we just come as we are needing and having the blood of Jesus cover us to be our righteousness. And so now this last part here, let's just, we'll talk about God's wrath and see that maybe it's not what we thought it was. Um, and I want to kind of use some of the fruit of the spirit, which may sound weird, uh, to say that God's wrath is part of what God is doing. It's flowing out of his character. And what we know from the fruit of the spirit is that that is the fruit of God's presence. And so there's never an exception to that. So first we see that God's wrath is patient. You know, if you've been with us through the study, you've seen this is actually the third cycle of sevens. There were seven seals, seven trumpets, and now seven plagues. But God's wrath has been shown in these three cycles of sevens, which means it's perfect, it's complete, it's total. It's going to finish the job it needs to do. But also we've seen so many pauses in the outpouring of God's wrath for what? For an opportunity to say, you don't have to die and you don't have to suffer the eternal wrath of God along with the dragon and his beasts. Come and return to me and receive the righteousness of Jesus through his blood and be on this side of things. Don't be on that side of things. And the amount of times throughout history, throughout revelation, throughout these visions that God is giving opportunity and opportunity and opportunity, almost to an embarrassing extent. It's like God's throwing a party and nobody wants to come and he keeps begging people to come. 
It's almost embarrassing the amount of opportunities that God gives people to turn to him and avoid all of this. So his wrath is patient. His wrath is also a display of self-control. His wrath is limited in a, in a sense. The very first verse of this passage, the wrath of God will be finished one day. It is not like an angry, drunk, abusive parent who is railing and getting drunk and then getting loud and then going to find somebody to beat on. That's not what the wrath of God is. The wrath of God is exact. It is perfect. It is not an emotional outburst or out of control. It is actually the definition of meekness, which is power under control. It is accomplishing the purpose for which it is sent and nothing more. And the seven angels that are carrying it out are wearing these priestly royal garments. They are carrying out a priestly royal function. This is appropriate, which brings us to the next point, that God's wrath is actually good because it is right. As the witnesses say in chapter 16, this is what they deserve. And even when the wrath is being poured out, these people are still cursing God. When they are the ones bringing the wrath on themselves, they, are, they have the audacity to curse God and refuse to repent. And that brings us to the next point, that his wrath is actually kind. He is giving everyone what they desire. For those who are his, he is giving us life with him. For those who do not want anything to do with him, he is fulfilling that request for them too. God's wrath is faithful. He has always acted in accordance with his character, in accordance with his word, and he has promised from the beginning of time that this is coming and he will keep his word. And God's wrath is loving. It is love. The wrath of God is poured out because just like in the Exodus account, he is protecting, he is keeping his people for himself. He is a good father. He is a good king who fights for and loves and protects and cares for his people and removes all evil and all wickedness so that his kingdom can be a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of joy and a kingdom of love. And no matter what we think now, remember that this is a vision of, of all of God's people in the future. And when they are in this place, when Jesus has returned and all has been made new and they finally see everything the way that it is from a new angle, they are all singing this song with no shame, no reservations. They're saying, yes, everything you've ever done, Jesus, is good. Everything you've ever done is perfect. Your will is perfect. You are perfect. This is, this is the only way it can be, and it's better than I ever imagined. In this last verse of chapter 15, it says that uh, God's sanctuary was filled with smoke from his glory and his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished probably there's a lot there um, that, that smarter people could tell you more about, but one thing that this is saying 
is Jesus saying, hey, I'm not asking you to sing this song of salvation in its fullness until you've experienced it in its fullness. Like, we've experienced it now, and so we sing it now to the best of our abilities, but there's a day coming where we will fully experience it when he has literally put everything right. There is only peace, there's only joy, all wickedness has been disposed of. And he is saying, um, I don't want you in here worshiping me for something that I haven't done yet. I'm gonna finish all of this and then we're going to bring in this full fullness of worship. And that is our Lord. And that is his wrath. And that is his love. And that is his holiness. And so, um, I'll just leave it there. And um, yeah, let's come on back up and, and close out in worship. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for helping us to see. Lord, thank you for shepherding us when we are weak. Thank you for loving us, and thank you that this is our future. Love and peace and joy and fullness in you. Strengthen us with that future now. Amen.